I, mean, I always I love to say, like, this is better than living I mean, to live in the Renaissance and Florence. And, and you get that with anesthesia, right? You get that today because we're living, if you live in North America, if you're lucky enough to live here and not in young Europe. And so um, the beautiful thing is that you're living in a Renaissance, right? You're living in an awakening of a century's millennia old culture that is coming to life before your very feet. What part are you going to play in that? I think the Christian faith helps you with that journey. I don't think it hinders you. I think it um, properly understood means that Christians should be the first in line to ask these rich questions. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. This episode is the second part of my conversation with Matthew Milliner. I've moved some parts around because we started the conversation even before I was able to do the introduction, and then we kept talking and recording after officially signing off. If you've ever listened to In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, you'll be familiar with what's going on here. You get some of the best tape outside the official interview. So with Matt's permission, some of this is bonus material from the cutting room floor and a signal where there's an artificial transition in the conversation. We've placed some musical interludes. You might want to go back and listen to the first part of this if you haven't already, but really, you can just jump right in. So let's jump in. Great. And in all seriousness, you know, if you want to, I mean, I just finished Thomas Fow's new book, Incomprehensible Certainty. You know, if you want to talk, gener- I mean, it's just, it's tour de force. It's like the positive answer to minding the modern. And so if you want to talk genealogies of modernity, I'll do whatever you want. You ask whatever. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, no, I haven't, I have not, I just saw that it came out, but I haven't gotten it yet. It's magnificent. Yeah. I feel like I finally understand minding the modern, which was the first kind of real genealogies of modernity kind of initiation for me. And now that that book's here, it, it helps me understand my discipline and, and I can easily tie it into this. Fascinating. So tell me how it complements or completes Minding the Modern. Yeah. So essentially what it, Minding the Modern was, a, it's a critical project. And I think what I realized in going back over it is he attacks the nostalgia critique of people who appeal to a Platonist Christian metaphysics as itself beholden to the progressive narrative of modernity. So insofar as you say, hey, John Milbank is nostalgic, you are betraying the fact that you are caught in this chronological sequence that you don't think one can return to. And I was always stunned by Louis Dupre, who says in Passages to Modernity, you can't go back. And I'm like, why can't you? And so what Minding the Modern does over 600 and some pages 
is using phenomenology as the as the forgotten ally, of course, and Fow is tackling all that in the original German sources. He realizes that any moment you can have an in-breaking and therefore to in any way have this kind of this locked-in chronology toward Neuzeit, right, new time, modernism, is just unnecessary because of the eruption that can happen at any moment. So he sets up that possibility and sort of just kind of snipes off the people who, whether through historicism or other ways, it make, don't, can't open their minds to that possibility. But he, the concluding lines of Mining the Modern are, well, but to really understand what I'm suggesting, you would have to go through the lens of the image in a rich polyphonic sense to see those multiple eruptions. And then over 700 and some pages, he traces a great history of the image, not in the slavish chronological sense, but in this series of periodic eruptions from Plato's The Sophist through Plotinus, through the Seventh Ecumenical Council, all the way through Nicholas of Cusa and the renegades for the image, throughout the constrictions of modernity, which include Cezanne, Rilke, and of course, Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's just absolutely magnificent. And so I really feel like I just could rest easy in the crisis that's afflicting my own discipline made baldly apparent through Christopher Wood's The History of Art History, where he just says, like, this discipline, you know, it's just eating itself alive, right? Relativism just consumes whatever's left of art history. And he actually, believe it or not, in that massive book, he says, you have three exit strategies, Gnosticism, Hinduism, I mean like real Hinduism, or I kid you not, the theology of Karl Barth. (laughs) This is Christopher Wood? Christopher Wood, the history of art history. You want an escape hatch from the insane relativism of art history, be a Bardian. Believe that the word can reveal itself and erupt into our uberoric snake eating its tail of relativistic art history. I'm flabbergasted, right? And so, but what's so interesting is really there's, I mean, it's not like, you know, I mean, it's, he just kind of presents that. And it's just, I mean, we read through it in my, our senior seminar for our art history students. They're all just like, what? Like, what is this that I got that I signed <laughs> up for? And now Thomas Fowl comes along and you're like, okay, this is what Art history is a, is a circum, or it is a, a discipline that puts one in touch intimately and consistently with this inbreaking of the image, which is why John Ruskin is so crucial and why the history of art has sort of had to exile him because he's just too close. He's too personal. And he emerges as one of the heroes of Fow's narrative. So not the only one, but one of them. So anyway, it's just like richly exciting. I'm just, I feel like the whole, my genealogy's journey has sort of, I just feel like, I feel like it's kind of come to an exit path of just, I no wow, longer, that's so beautiful. agonizing. Well, and the other, I think the other one, the other person you've got to, I mean, he's a, a outsider by design, but um, I really think that what Michael Martin has accomplished in his Sophiology trilogy. Oh, is, I just came across that. In particular, I think the submerged reality is the only genealogy of modernity, short genealogy of modernity, the first chapter of that book in particular, that I can assign to lower level undergraduates that they'll get. It is, I mean, they're captivated by it. And it's really, I mean, to, and it's not that it's not high level, it's just he's such an accessible writer. And 
it is he really he puts the whole problem on the doorstep of all the traditions by tackling pure nature. And that, I mean, going back to our conversations that go back ages, I mean, going back to you and I at the Analogy of Being conference, it really seems like there's been the great migration <laughs> of the blame pinning. You know, no longer is it pin the tail on the donkey of John Dunn Scotus. I'm kind of done with that. It's like, because I found too many places where he defends analogical metaphysics. We all know the analogy of being is our friend, but now the pin the tail of the donkey goes toward natura pura, right? It's like, like that's the enemy. And if that's the enemy, which Michael Martin does such a good job of isolating, and of course, countless people have done that as well, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, this is an ecumenical problem. Stop blaming one particular confession. I mean, for goodness sakes, Michael Horton, I know he's not a, you know, a flashy thinker in the sense that he's going to be read all over the place. He's a you know, classic reformed thinker. But his, his book on justification, I mean, he just goes to town and he finds Luther uh, critiquing Scotus. He finds all these citations that are completely unexpected. And Martin Luther's theology of beauty just, again, goes to town and says, Here's all this analogical metaphysics resonating in Protestant sources. Valentin Weigel is the one who kept this. Is, there's a brand new book called Protestants and Mysticism, edited by a wonderful scholar who's now at Duke, Ron Ritgers, and, and someone else. And they're just like, we now have the Kusanus inheritance thrives most among Lutherans. It's like, what? Like, who knew? And then you read Valentin Weigel, 1533 to 1588, and you're like, wait a second, he's quoting Meister Eckhart. Like, he's the one that's keeping it alive. But according to the other narratives I read from, that are 15 years old now, I was supposed to blame all of them for being the ones who turned things. And now, again, that, and it's not to say that the Protestant tradition is in any way to be exonerated. It has massive problems. But so does the Catholic tradition, and so does the Orthodox tradition. It's got to be a project where we unify together in um, kind of a tag team project of saying, can we all now join in uh, the invention of the Antichrist? There's that wonderful article that went, I think, in Communio, is actually pure nature, <laughs> not the analogy of being. So anyway, there's all this, I think this conversation is massively shifted in a really exciting way. Anyway, so what does that have to do with, you might say, with indigenous? It has a whole heck of a lot to do with indigenous theology. And I was going to a conference in Edinburgh and then giving some talks in St. Andrews. And then I discovered the Future of Christian Thinking Conference, which is happening at St. Patrick's Seminary in Maynooth, Ireland. And it's like all of these people, not all of them, I don't think Thomas Bow is going to be there, but like it's, and really like it's kind of bringing together these sort of like three strains of genealogies of modernity that hitherto haven't really talked to each other. And, and they're calling a truce and they're saying we all need to collaborate. And it's going to be a, so I'm, I added it on, I changed my flights and I'm, I'm headed there. So, okay, that's fascinating. I'm going to look into this. I'm glad it's happening. Did you go to the Bulgakov conference? No. I, went I didn't to, know oh about gosh, this. Where to, was it? Okay, I attended every... It was in, in Freiburg, but it was online. Oh, okay. And so I attended 
every single session. It was electrifying. It was so wonderful. And so it was, it was in late August, I think, or early September. It was magnificent. And it's all freely available. Oh, cool. Um, it's just, by the way, I almost am never on Instagram. I'm always on Twitter. And that's where I try to interact in this way. But the guy for me right now, the newest page turn in the conversation is Anton Arjanovsky, the uh, toward an ecumenical metaphysics. You know, this no. guy. How do you so, spell Arjanovsky? So it's, let me see if I'm getting his name right. So he's in Paris. Uh, I'm sorry, Arjakovsky, Arjakovsky towards an ecumenical metaphysics. And that seems to be, I don't know. I think he might be Catholic, but here's what I found so exciting. So it's a three volume project, you know, Ralph Williams endorsed, David Hart endorsed, and I just couldn't not buy it. And so I got it because it interacts so adventurously with, with Hinduism, Buddhism, and particularly even with like Ken Wilbur, like who is like, no one talks about him, but he had the he kind of the, forgive the term, the balls to kind of say, all right, I'm going to read Ken Wilbur, kind of the Buddhist grand history guy, which who I kind of learned from as well. And so, I mean, he, for goodness sakes, the guy's citing Deepak Chopra. I'm not joking, <laughs> but, in a, in his, but because he's outside of the American conversation, he's like, all right, I'm going to learn from this guy. And so, but what I found interesting about it is the first time that someone with academic footnotes who's part of this conversation, and he also has a heavy sociological twist in a positive way. And the fact that it's ecumenical, we all need to be doing this together. So that for me, and Michael Martin knows him, and I interact with Michael mostly through Twitter, and he's another great podcast guest. He's just a s sweet fellow. He's a total battle axe on Twitter. What's his he's story? And everything. So he's a, he taught at a Waldorf school for a while. So he's like a brilliant folk musician, a biodynamic farmer, kind of totally isolated from the academic community, like a total battle axe on Twitter. Where does he like live? Just, um, he lives on a farm in Michigan. And sometimes, you know, Francesca Murphy and the gang will, and, and people will go out and like, you know, he hosts people on his farm. But he's the kindest, gentlest soul, even though he's can really a jerk on, on Twitter oh, because gosh. he's just so, he's so anti- kind of, he's a Christian anarchist, like a real anarchist. And so, but I really do think his, again, he has three books. Well, he has many more than that, in fact, but all of his stuff is amazing. But his Sophiology trilogy, which is threefold, the submerged reality, transfiguration toward a radical Catholic rethinking of everything. And the latest one is Sophia in exile. And it's really, I think it's just He's in the Millbank Heart crowd, but his, I don't know, just, I find he's the most accessible, accessible sociologist I know of. And he knows Antoine. So anyway, he's, but again, he feels kind of a little bit on the outs because I think he's so radical that some of the Catholic people kind of dismiss him. So another person to keep in mind. So a lot of what we've been talking about with this history of Native American culture is the substance of your book. But you, you bring in G.K. Chesterton as a constant interlocutor as you work through this material. Why G.K. Chesterton? Why not just work through the material? Very easy answer to that question. So we have a, the Wade Center at Wheaton College, which has the papers of C.S. Lewis, the desk of J.R.R. Tolkien, the papers of Dorothy Sayers, 
and all of these famous figures, even Owen Barfield, the anthroposophist, at Charles Williams, right? So we have this archive, right? It's our thing. And, and the Wade Center, run by Crystal and David Downing, they're it's an extraordinary small institution. And so they have a series, and the series is the Hanson Lectures, where you Wheaton scholars are invited to plumb the archives and write about figures. So our president did Tolkien, and then my friend Tim, there are a bunch of them. And so I was invited to be a part of this, and it was at that time that I was learning more and more about indigenous issues, and I said, sure, I'll do it, so long as I can talk about indigenous folks. I could have easily paired it with C.S. Lewis. I mean, that's a slam dunk, but everyone writes about C.S. Lewis. And book probably would have, you know, a lot of people would have noticed it. But I just said, look, I, I know Chesterton. I, I'm, I, you know, he was really important to me. Can I put him in conversation with the indigenous people of this land? And they're like, sure. And no one knew what to make of the project. But I'm like, look, that's the only reason I, I the only way that I want to give attention to these to these figures is if I can update them with new concerns. The last thing I want to do is like ape G.K. Chesterton. We don't need another one of those guys, right? We need someone updating his concerns. And so I set about on the project, and it's really easy. Just so the real work was learning all the new bibliography. It's just Chesterton. It's just an easy match over and over again. Why? Because he's for the underdog. He's responding to H.G. Wells, who is the Yuval Noah Harari of his day, saying, stop it with your ridiculous progressivism, <laughs> right? That's who he was. He's like, you're saying the world is just advancing. We've left disease behind. We left war behind, right? Harari said these things before COVID and before what we're experiencing. I'm glad he's now trying to update his data, but nevertheless, for goodness sakes, homo deus, he, Chesterton was faced with that. And so instead he writes the everlasting people to put Christ at the center, the suffering servant. And of course, Chesterton is famously for the underdog. And in his visits to America, he says, I wish I could attend more to the indigenous people. I know that Chesterton is unfashionable. For a while, he was fashionable. He'll probably be fashionable again because, you know, it, what's interesting, I mean, he, he never bored me, which I always found, I was expecting to be bored by him, but he just didn't because once you put him in contact with the indigenous people, you're like, but isn't he problematic? Like, yes, he is. I'm well aware of that. But it's also a richly complicated conversation. So you might say, what's the point, right? Well, if my point was just to score points with the current academic crowd, not a winner. But if my point is to get someone who loves Chesterton and could care less about indigenous issues to care about indigenous issues, it's a win and it's working, right? People who care about Chesterton and, and think that the minute you talk about Indians that you're going to be PC, right? I'm like, well, why don't I use that as a gateway point? And that's the thing. And so it's an intended to be a hospitable opening to people who might not pay attention to this other words. And here's the other challenge. It's like, okay, how about this? You know, how about you write about race without talking about wokeness or critical theory or white supremacy? It's just as a mental exercise. I'm not afraid to talk about any of those things, right? But the minute I say those words, everyone's like, oh, hackles are up. Ooh. Either you're, what's, what team are you on? I don't want to approach it that way. And so instead of going to critical race theory, which I can do. I don't have a problem with it. I'm aware of it. I trained in that ethos. Instead, I said, why don't I go to indigenous myth instead? Why don't I let indigenous mythology inform the history of racism in this country? And that was what the attempt was to do, is to really take indigenous myth of the Thunderbird and the Mishipeshu and let it inform the history of racism. And frankly, I find it a lot more humiliating as a descendant of settler colonialism. I found it a lot more challenging 
and and it forced me to plumb my own ancestral history. And th- those discoveries were not pleasant. My wife jokes, you know, you were depressed for a week when you found this stuff out, right? You were mopey because you're like, gosh, this is horrible. What my ancestors participated in. Did I demonize them? Do I villainize them? No, I don't. I have more sympathy and compassion for them. But I know the truth, right? I know the truth about what happened in the the conquest of this territory that they were beneficiaries of, right? And not, it's just so, it's just one of those things where, you know, again, it's not that I can't talk in the ways that people want to communicate and the kind of things that get talk show hosts animated, right? I can do that. But my attempt was to circumvent all of that and say, let's do it this way. I would love, you know, I don't have, I'm not going to do this, but it would be so interesting. Like, you know, play the experiment forward, you know, John Ruskin and the Arapaho, right? Or, you know, John Henry Newman and the Pueblo. I mean, like, wouldn't that be cool, right? Wouldn't it be exciting to say, here are thinkers that everyone knows about and talks about and thinks about. Now let's put them in touch with these people. In both of those, you would find surprising contact points. So that's that's the idea. But again, the problem is it takes so much explanation. And trust me, the press was like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't get it. No one got it, right? Even after I gave the lectures, like, what? What are you doing? And I'm like, just trust me. This, this is going to work. Anyway, who knows if it, it works. works. It's written. I, I think it, <laughs> I was skeptical as well, and I came away <laughs> really convinced. So, Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. You do talk about the subject of your, you know, let us say, more squarely academic work in, in art history. It comes up in this book, and specifically in Our Lady of Perpetual Help. I grew up in Salem, Virginia, and basically catty corner from my house was Our Lady of Perpetual Help Catholic Church. And Oh really? Yeah. And Oh, I was hunt I was hunting for her all over Virginia. I wish I knew that. Yeah. Yeah, still there. And I regularly attend daily mass at St. Paul Cathedral in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And mm. there's fairly new, I think it was acquired within the last 10 years, massive icon of what you taught me to recognize as Our Lady of the Passion or Our Lady of Perpetual Help. I had not realized that that is who that was. And I had not realized the history of it, which is Roman Catholic crusaders wiping out the Orthodox inhabitants of Cyprus. And Our Lady of the Passion is written as a lament of this atrocity. And but you have this fascinating concept then in the book of activation. So you said, what if we activate that history in this icon? And that was a fascinating way to, to come at history. And maybe it has something to do with the inbreaking of the past that you said Thomas Fowles' work enables. Say a little bit more theoretically about expand on how we can activate an image or activate the history of an image. Yeah. And again, and I think, you know, what Fowl would say, it's not even of the past. It's of the, the invisible behind the visible, right? It's, it's a, because what we're talking about breaking in is not past. It is ever present at any moment, at any time. What is required is simply enough reverence, wonder, and patience to permit the saturated phenomenon to saturate and for one to at least be present enough to attend the to The conversion it. of the gaze. And, right, exactly, exactly. And so the idea being 
that when this history, and Pius IX did almost certainly did not know this history. I don't see how he could have known it. And some of you may be asking, why am I mentioning him? The great Pio Nono, the great Ultramontan Pope par excellence, the, the, the defender of tradition, the Pope that all the trads would appeal to is this, the, the height of, of papal supremacy. He's the one who spreads this icon around the world, by the way, referring to her as virgin priest. And that source, that source checks out. I have, I, trust me, I know I pinned a lot on it in this book and I dug and it's, it is he says it in a preface to a book on the sacerdotal Mary in 1875, right before he dies. And the fathers of the church have rightly called her the virgin priest. And immediately after that, um, it got a lot of attention. And then it was aggressively suppressed. That was not that devotion was was not permitted. The early 20th century was tamped down. But the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> It's like one must reckon with that. How one reckons with that is there are a variety of strategies. But um, this, the argument I make in the book is that the Virgin of the Passion slash Our Lady of Perpetual Health, which is the name she gets under Catholic auspices, is the single most popular and pervasive instance of Mary. Everyone hears that and you get nervous. It's like, no, no, I'm referring to... All, I mean, it is ubiquitous in mainstream, not heterodox Christian sources. So that's a whole other story. But activating the icon, when one understands the history, which Pius IX would not have understood because he didn't have the scholarship that we have to realize it emerges as a result of crusader conquest of Cyprus, we have to remember that Pius IX, he's also losing territory, right? <laughs> he also wants to claim and hold on to his rights, that is, the papal states, and those are being taken from him. And he has to come to terms with that. And so unconsciously, perhaps, or maybe I don't need to just appeal to the unconscious. I'm a Christian thinker. I can appeal to perhaps the Holy Spirit right? is gravitating him toward the icon that can help him attend to this reality that is inevitable. And we all, in retrospect, celebrate, I hope, the constriction of the papal states to Vatican City, right? But that is happening and he needs some help. And he intuitively gravitates toward an icon that is not a symbol of conquest, but of passion, of the loss of territory. And, you know, again, it's funny, you know, it's funny you mentioned you, you grew up a kitty corner from it. It's like, I've just, I'm not surprised because I'm tired of surprise. Surprise is sort of a, um, it's a condition of the soul that, that is, it can be wearisome. And and so one final set one one one, so one settles in Yeah. And so one settles into kind of beloved expectation. Like of course Ryan grew up across from it. Like when the Ukraine war started, of course Our Lady of Perpetual Help shows up in a bomb shelter in Kiev. Of course she does. Like when I saw that on my Twitter feed, I'm like, of course. Where else is she gonna show up? And of course the Russians are using a militarized Virgin Mary to try to endorse this war, as Mary has always been used. And of course, the Virgin of the Passion would emerge as the response to the conquering violence of, of neo-imperialist Russia. By the way, I, I don't want to forget to say this, in Pittsburgh, you know this well, so Maxovanka, you know what I'm referring to? Oh, yes. Beautiful. Oh, gosh. I mean, that... St. Nicholas Croatian of, Catholic mm -hmm, Church in, in Millvale has these, these spectacular murals that place Christ and Christ's passion in the First World War. 
And it's that image that in that church of Mary destroying the weapons, that's a contemporary application. And it's, it's the stunning image. That's the Mary that we need to bring forth right now, right? Not a militarized Mary to counter the militarized Mary, but I think that Mary that transcends but it just so happens that the Virgin of the Passion is, is first, right? And so in the book book, the real book, I tell the story going all the way back to how the miracle of her surfacing in the twilight of Byzantium and how she became an emblem of a military defeat, not military. So she's like, it's, she's like the anti-Putin Mary, right? And she has presence in Moscow, by the way, and she really does. But in the book, I, I tell the long case, but in The Everlasting People, I simply applied it to indigenous history, which is the easiest thing to do. Because, of course, the indigenous people are losing their territory, and this is a protest of sorts. This is a lamentation. And I just found her everywhere amongst the indigenous people. And so it was just like, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It's like you go to a place of settler colonial violence, and there's an OLPH church, and you're like, of course. You know, you just, again, that's just settled expectation. Like, I mean, I remember driving to the Black Hills and just I had my, like, you, you know, this feeling, like your advisor's voice in the back of your head, why are you studying things that are not your specialty, right? You have that voice. And I get off of, you know, you got the kids in the car and I get it, of course, in Waldrug, the great stop on the way to the Black Hills. And I go in and there's a, there's a whole church dedicated to Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Really? In, in, inside Waldrug? In, in Waldrug. <laughs> I missed that. And I'm just, yeah, I know. It's like in Waldrug, right? There it is. And I'm just like, okay, maybe this isn't irrelevant. And it was this like slow exiting from the from the academic silo of your specialization, which of course you should never leave, or then you won't be a good scholar, right? It's like, you, just, you slowly get up and you're like, and then you look in both directions, you're like, oh, no one cares. <laughs> and then you keep leaving and you go into this other realm and you humble yourself before the history of a scholarship that you need to learn about. And lo and behold, she was there. Wow. Well, well Drug also has a small... I guess, museum or exhibit that is all these black and white photos of U.S. cavalry. And I think that some of it is from early Western films. And so there are these there are these native tribal actors, essentially, or extras. And what they're acting out is they're acting out the violent conquest of that very territory. Yeah, and so it's troubling. I'm sorry to hear that. But I will say that there's there was a humble little exhibition when I was there. It wasn't in Waldrug itself. It was a couple. It was just an attempt to response to that, and it was simply a wounded knee museum. And I walked in, and this just tender, you know, God bless him. This just tender, you know, you know, silver-haired boomer white guy, you know, just hands me a you know turkey feather painted like an eagle feather with a little wounded knee sticker on it and just said with sadness, yeah, you need to know this history. And I was just like, oh, thank I still have the feather. I was like, thank you. And I walked through and it was harrowing, right? And of course, you know, I knew a little bit about it. I learned more. I visited the sites. And so, you know, there is a tender, mournful counter expression to that, which of course is the Pine Ridge Reservation itself in comparison to the Black Hills. Gosh, what a horrible, I mean, it's funny. In the Black Hills, like 1980, the Supreme Court, eight out of nine. Yeah, I was stolen. Shady dealing. America should give it back. And they gave it back in financial form. And the Lakota said, we don't want the money. We want the land. And it's been sitting, accruing interest ever since. That's the status of the Black Hills right now. What's Are there any updates on the status of Wheaton's property in the Black Hills? 
Oh, oh yeah. That's part of why I wrote the book is I wanted to, you know, have a, you know, an honest kind of assessment of this. So the concluding chapter, I wrestle with the Black Hills and, you know, some agitated undergraduate, and I don't blame them, will say like, oh, stolen land, we're on stolen land. I'm like, well, are we? In Illinois, second prairie of Prairie du Chien, 1829, the Nishinabe sold this land as they sold Chicago at the Treaty of Chicago. Now, I do my research there, and I talk to my friend John Lau, and he'll be like, yeah, don't tell me that we were duped. Like, we did the best we could. I'm Potawatomi. My ancestors did the best they could, and the circumstances delivered to them. And uh, it weren't ideal. I think it was perfect conditions, but, but it's a legitimate sale. And again, complicated question in regards to each territory in America needs to be assessed in that way. You can't just throw around the word stolen land because you're actually insulting indigenous people. However, the Black Hills is pretty clear. That's actually stolen, <laughs> right? Because in 1868, the Treaty of Fort Laramie, this is set aside in perpetuity for the indigenous people. And then when we discover gold, they can't, we can't stop the influx of settlers. And then we try to protect the settlers and then Custer's killed. And then it's just all, it's like, all right, now we're going to revenge him. And that's what wounded me is. It's a revenge for, for what happened at the Battle of Greasy Grass. And so slash the Battle of Little Bighorn. And so it's like, and then we took the land back. And then how do you justify, and here's the thing. Okay, let's just do this real quick, Ryan. Okay, so if I was to move into your house and just eject your family, and, and I didn't want people asking questions. I would just have like my family. I would like replace, you know, put my pictures where your family's pictures were. And like, you know, just all the McDermott regalia would be like tucked away. And it would be like milliner land. Like I would just, and I would be really aggressive about that. So you see where I'm going, I'm sure. Not Rushmore. How about I, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but it's not just Rushmore. It's Independence Hall a replica slapped in the middle of the Black Hills, which is one of the weirdest monuments. It's Reagan and Kennedy. There's like fake little, like, you know, little Mount Rushmore's as you drive through the Black Hills as well. It's bronze statues of all the presidents through Rapid City. For goodness sakes. And then the greatest miracle, not the greatest miracle, I don't know what the greatest miracle is. One of the finest and most stunning developments in my lifetime and yours has been the renaming of Harney Peak, right? I mean, Black Elk Peak, it's like, what What more can you ask for? That Harney, the butcher of the Lakota, who again is avenging the horrible massacre that led to the Sioux Wars, he, Ash Hollow, just guns down all of these Lakota, and then he gets his name on top of the highest peak in the Black Hills where Black Elk saw Christ. You might be like, well, you didn't see Christ, I've read John Neidhart just says he saw this man who was neither Indian nor was he white and he was filled with rainbows. Don't say that's a Christian vision. Yeah, the reason you think that is because John Neidhart deliberately omitted the part where there were holes in the palms of his hands. Why? Because John Neidhart was a lit professor who didn't want a non-exotic Christianity to intrude upon his cool, epic experience with Black Elk. I know Neidhart is a complex figure. I should be more respectful of him. I understand that. But what you literally bury the fact that Black Elk saw Jesus, it's a little bit troubling. He wanted an exotic, non-Christian Indian. 
that's not who Black Elk was. And Black Elk speaks ends by saying the hoop of the nation is broken. And now all the research, whether it's the Malley's, the sixth grandfather, or John Sweeney's wonderful little book on Black Elk is saying, yeah, uh, he didn't die. He kept living and converted 500 Lakota to Catholicism. So can we attend to that part of Black Elk as well? And that's what I mean by one of the greatest moments that we're living in is kind of the miracle that goes for Black Elk canonization is that that was through the South and it's now called Black Elk Peak. Hallelujah. I know it's Lent, but those of you listening, it might not be. So I'm going to say it. Hallelujah. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. And that happened. And, and it's so, so anyway, so the question is, Wheaton, what are we going to do about it? Well, you might say, oh, our institution is dragging their feet. They're never going to do anything about it. And you have like, a, a, is it like a campus there? Is that? Yeah, we, we have a small patch of land. And I, and I had a board of trustee call me. They're like, talk to me. We, we need to think this through. And I said, absolutely, let's talk. So when we went to Pine Ridge, we went to Oglala Lakota College. And so we were staying at the Black Hills. We drove the van down there and um, and we got, and, and a woman there told us the history of Wounded Knee and about Harney, who my ancestors are connected to. And I tell the story in the book, which is why it was such a gut punch to hear that. And she said, well, she told us the story and, I, and we just looked at her with horror and we're like, wait, but, but you're Lakota and you've got this like land here at Pine Ridge, but the sacred land of the Black Hills were a, a kind of suburban Illinois college. We own it. And she looked at us without a word and her, her look said everything. And, and I, we were just like walked out of there, like stunned. And we're like, what do we do with this? Now, granted, I mean, I'm not saying it's villainous. I'm not saying that every single person who has a home in the Black Hills needs to be evicted today. You know, there are creative solutions and ways to think through this. But what happened was we got, I kid you not, we got back in the van and we had just gone to a Lakota radio station and so we turned, I turned on the radio and there was a, I, I like, you know, just, we had a long drive ahead of us and I just found this like gospel station and was listening, you know, for like, you know, 30 seconds to this preacher. And he was preaching from the gospels about Jesus saying, giving, giving away everything you own. And I, I joked to the students in the van, I turned it off. I said, well, we better turn that off. <laughs> if we're a Christian college and owns land in the Black Hills, that might intrude upon our possessions. You know, and that's the thing. And so I told, you know, and I think that, you know, there's a great book. I mean, it's a, it, it get the, here's the issue. Who do you give it back to, right? Because the Lakota weren't always there. They were pushed in that direction. And so in my, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, right? Like, you know, this is, these aren't, you know, this, these are open dealings where we've, we've got to have these conversations. And so what I recommended, I don't know what's going to happen, but I want to respectfully make these suggestions is the way forward is a partnership with a global Lakota college, Lakota college and say, look, um, how do we work together here? You know, the land is used well by Wheaton College. We honor it. We let it lie fallow. We use it for educational purposes, for geology, for, you know, the very experiences that I just described to you are possible because of the small little patch of land we have there. And so, but of all the places that should be thinking creatively as to how to move forward, having owning a little place of the heart of all that is, <laughs> according to Lakota cosmology, we need to think creatively. And that's what I hope we're going to do. Right. Just like I hope we can have interesting conversations about why the Winfield Mounds is called the Winfield Mounds. These are all local questions. You know, you go up to Ontario to the Great Bruce Peninsula. Right. These are, you know, the people on Manitoulin Island has to have to ask that question in an entirely different way. And so wherever you are, right, stay put and have a lifetime conversation with the indigenous people in that area because they're there, right? They're there, right? And it's like you, I, mean, I always, I love to say like, this is better than living. 
I get it. Like nobody wants to live in the Quattrocento because they wouldn't have anesthesia. But in a fantasy intellectual world, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in the Renaissance and Florence? And, and you get that with anesthesia. You get that today because we're living, if you live in North America, if you're lucky enough to live here and not in young Europe, <laughs> then you, um, I get it. They have old stuff too, but then you, but we've just so, um, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Oh, there are no ruins here. I can't be a writer. I've got to go to Europe. I've got to go to Rome. Now there are ruins here. You just missed them. <laughs> and so the beautiful thing is that you're living in a Renaissance, right? You're living in an awakening of a century's millennia old culture that is coming to life before your very feet. What part are you going to play in that? I think the Christian faith helps you with that journey. I don't think it hinders you. I think it, and properly understood, means that Christians should be the first in line to ask these rich questions. And so I dragged Chesterton along to ask them. That'll be a great way to end the, the actual podcast. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Oh,